0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett.
1: As uh, we hope you know, dear listener, that we like to talk about Radio Parallax as a show that is about science and technology. And we are off on that. And never more so than when we bring on science authors and or guests. For most of today's program, we will take a look back at some of our favorite moments in taking up matters of science and technology. What better place to start in this than our chat with longtime host of NPR's excellent program, Science Friday. Host Ira Flato had written a book titled Present at the Future, and he spoke with us about it. It was a most enjoyable chat, and I'm surprised to realize it has been overlooked for rebroadcast on the show since it first aired in 2007. But like all of today's clips, it is available online at radioparallax.com. We're happy to add that Science Friday is still on the air. I checked last Friday, and although Ira shares his hosting duties with a few others now, he's still going strong. With us, he got to talking about something we all do, sleep. In your book, your discussion on sleep was something I enjoyed quite a bit, having suffered through medical residency myself, where I was supposedly <laughs> trading off a sleep for learning at 4.30 a.m., which I thought was not a good trade. Uh, why we sleep at all has been a major biological mystery. It appears we're now unraveling it. You talk about that in the book.
2: Well, we talk about sleep being a place to consolidate ideas. You know, it's still a very mysterious place, uh, and what role sleep does take uh at nighttime, consolidating ideas. What do dreams mean? Why do we dream? But there's some really interesting research, very solid research, done by a guy named Stickold at Harvard, I think is where he was. And uh, I, we we followed his career over the years as he did this one very simple experiment. He took he took his students, as you know, college students are usually guinea pigs for a lot of experiments in college, <laughs> and he had them play Tetris. You know, and he had them learn new and new and different uh, skills. And he found that in learning these skills, if you didn't get seven hours of sleep at night, you never really cemented the skill. And it was really crucial that you get not six, not five. You had to get at least seven hours of sleep at night. So if you wanted to learn how to play the piano better, you wanted to become better at Tetris or whatever, you had to get that sleep, and he would prove it by keeping people awake or get, allowing them to sleep at various, you know, rates. And I said to him, you know, I, I can't learn. I'm trying to learn a new instrument. I'm, I'm in my 50s. I'm trying to learn an instrument. I, you know, I said, I never get any. I don't, I don't get more than four or five hours of sleep a night. He says, bingo. That's why it's so hard for people, older people, to learn things. The older people just don't get that kind of sleep anymore. And he says, you really need to sleep. It was really eye-opening to me, so to speak, you know, that this was so instrumental in learning a new uh, a new skill. If you want to learn it, get that sleep. Things yeah. are going on in your brain that consolidate and cement in that uh, hand-eye coordination that you need.
1: So yeah, someone speculates in your book that some medical residents are physiologically asleep when they're prescribing medicines. And I want to know for the record, I- I'm certain that's true.
2: <laughs> yeah. I've been in the emergency room myself where somebody's just woken up and in, examining me and they're still blinking his eyes.
1: Yes, we, we've learned over the years that sometimes when you're, when you're pondering something, to sleep on it really does allow you to sort of reshuffle the deck and, and ideas come the next day that you were sort of stuck on. It's just fascinating.
2: Yeah, I know. It happens to me, you know. A, a lot of times uh, I can't sleep sometimes at night and I get up out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and sit down with a pad of paper. Wow, that problem I was trying to figure out is now crystal clear.
1: And we also talked a bit about a rather surprising quote from primatologist Jane Goodall. I, too, was startled about Jane Goodall uh, reading in Present at the Future. Uh, she made a statement that really just hit me between the eyes. She said that after the September 11th attacks, traveling around, she found that Americans were reluctant to admit they cared about the environment as it might seem unpatriotic. Yeah. I, I thought that was startling, at the same time not, given how issues have been framed in the U.S. currently. Did that, did that shock you as well?
2: Yeah, well, I think Europeans you see the Europeans are way ahead of us in the environment, and um, they have they have a whole, they have green parties. They have much more. Uh, they're much more ahead of us about controlling greenhouse gases. But I think that that may go along with the whole idea of if you're not American, you're unpatriotic. The whole French idea. Look how the whole French idea turns itself around now. Yeah, it's um, now now patriotic to be French thinking. Um, So uh, it it is shocking, but, you know, it's a big world out there, and that's the the problem of this ocean that we have on both sides of us. It, It saved us from a lot of destruction during two world wars, but it also has isolated us tremendously from other countries.
1: This was back in 2007, mind you. Show 274, if you want to check. I'd like to be able to say that the Internet broadened people's outlooks over these years, but of course, just nine years later, the Republican Party ran Donald Trump as its candidate, and social media would play a key role in the Trump campaign. Ouch! Anyway, another guest we enjoyed speaking with was astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson. He, too, had written a book about the demotion of Pluto in The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. He talked with us about why you favor the downgrade of the former ninth planet. In
3: 1800, there was a planet discovered called Ceres in 1801. You, never, you ever heard of planet Ceres? Probably not, because it's like a, it's an asteroid. <laughs> so <laughs> when it was first discovered, people said, wow, this is great. We found a planet orbiting between, between Mars and Jupiter. Everybody got excited. The textbooks all got adjusted. Then they found another planet there, and then another, and another, and another. So they found Ceres, Pallas, Vesta, and Juno. They all got their names, just like the rest of the planet. Everybody was excited. And then a few years later, they found another dozen, and then another 20. And they said, wait, something's going on here. They're all orbiting together in this swath. Maybe it's a n- different kind of object. In fact, they are now collectively known as the asteroids. So we think the Pluto story mirrors this story because we discover Pluto first and everybody's excited then we find out you know it's not as big as we thought it was in fact it's actually pretty small there's seven moons in the solar system bigger than it that's, that's kind of embarrassing if you're a planet <laughs> and it's, or, its orbit crosses the orbit of Neptune its orbit is tipped out of the plane of the solar system it's mostly ice by volume it would grow a tail if you brought it to where Earth is right now from the heat from the sun so it was just an oddball and so then you realize discovered in the 90s that there are other icy bodies out there in the outer solar system. And we realized that those icy bodies kind of behave like Pluto. So maybe Pluto has friends and family out there. And so what we did here in New York, in our exhibit, was present Pluto as a member of this new class of object. And that's what got us into trouble.
1: We also spoke with him about a very good guess made by astronomer Gerald Kuiper about what's out there and also about... Cooking pizza on Venus. I've always been, as an aside, sort of astounded by the fact that, uh, that Dr. Kuiper said, you know, there's got to be a, a belt of ice balls out there past Neptune, and, and, and by God, he was right.
3: Yeah, I mean, good theorists have a good, have a good nose for what should or should not be so in the universe. And Gerard Kuiper, this is now 60 years ago, thought to himself, I don't see a large planet out there, yet the solar system is formed from the accretion of debris from the original gas cloud that made it. And if, it's no, if, if, there's nothing to, if there's no source of high gravity to sort of vacuum up this debris, then this debris should still be out there Why don't you look for it. And we needed the biggest telescope in the world to find it, and it took 40 years into the 1990s before the existence of what we now call the Kuiper Belt was established.
1: And if you don't mind, Dr. Tyson, I want to just uh, mention another book you wrote I uh, like very much, Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic uh, Quandaries. Uh,
3: that came out two years ago, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks for mentioning it.
1: Yeah, you, you had a great calculation in there that I just loved. You you did the math on, it's noting that it's so hot on Venus that you could cook a pepperoni pizza in seven seconds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, well
3: Just put it out on the windowsill; it'll cook in seven seconds, right.
1: It also really makes me take my hat out those Soviet scientists that actually landed a probe and got some pictures on the surface. Holy mackerel. Well,
3: yeah, it wasn't for very long, though. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's a dangerous place to be for all of your equipment. And so, yeah, it's, it's... By the way, if you want to know how you do that calculation, there's not only how much hotter Venus is than Earth, but there's also how much denser the atmosphere is. Uh-huh. Because the more molecules are in the atmosphere for any given sort of square inch, the more heat can be transmitted to the pizza for every square inch of, of cooking surface. So both of those factors combine to rapidly cook the pizza. And you have to cook a pizza because a pizza's thin enough to not burn it on the inside. You, you can't cook a roast that way because you'll just sin to the outside and the inside will still be raw or frozen. So, you need something really thin. So, peach is the ideal food to test this on.
1: Speaking of astronomers, that's not a segue we use all that often. We thoroughly enjoyed our chat with author James Connor, who wrote a book on the legendary astronomer Johannes Kepler, whose mother was once tried as a witch, by the way. Uh, Kepler's, we mean, not Connor's. Isaac Newton once said, if I've seen further than other men, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And without a doubt, one of the giants he was referring to had to have been Kepler.
4: Well, oddly enough, Kepler was the man he wasn't referring to, but Kepler was the man he ought to have referred to. I would say three or four of the main ideas of Newton, the the most important discoveries that Newton made, Kepler had laid the groundwork for that. But Newton was this terrible arch-egotist who couldn't stand the fact that he owed so much to this guy Kepler, uh-huh. and um, uh, even his own friends said, "Hey, you're you're short you're you're uh, you're you're shortchanging this guy Kepler. You need to pay more attention to him when you're when you're giving giving out your thanks to people." He just he thought Galileo was great. I think one of the reasons everybody knows Galileo and a few people know Kepler is that is that Galileo uh, not only because uh, Galileo fought with the Pope, which is always exciting. Uh, but he, uh, but but Newton praised Galileo for years and 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 never said a word about Kepler.
1: What? That is
4: interesting. Yeah, it, he he, it, he didn't really owe that much to Galileo, but he owed right. a lot to Kepler. And right. I don't think he liked to. I don't think he liked to admit it. Kepler was um, one of the four great founders a, a, of modern science. Maybe there's I, five. I, I would say five.
1: I, I'm guessing, and you're going to name Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, Kepler, and Tycho Brahe. Okay, perfect.
4: Okay, those would be the five, the big five. And Kepler, Kepler was one of them. Kepler was the first real theoretician.
1: Okay, the other four, probably least famous of, of those five would be Tycho. Can you tell us a little bit about, about him and how much Kepler owes him?
4: Oh, uh, Kepler owes him uh, a lot. And he, and he, and he uh, said so too. Uh, he was Kepler's boss, his mentor. He was probably the greatest observer, scientific observer in, at that time. He's been called the last the last great pre-telescope astronomer. That's right. Yes. And he had uh, he was a Danish nobleman and he had his own island. Can you can you believe that <laughs> that was it was given to him by the king and he set up an observatory on this island and made all kinds of things. Of course the, the local people hated him because he made them work so much. So so then the new king came in and then said I don't like you anymore so he booted Tycho Brahe out of there and Tycho ended up being the um uh, ended up being the emperor's mathematician in Prague. Which was uh, the the Habsburg Emperor, the great. This was um, the the last parts of what you would used to call the Holy Roman Empire. So he he had probably the biggest science job in the world at the time, and um, and he brought Kepler on as his assistant. And Kepler worked with him for a year, and then Tycho, um, rather unfortunately, died. And so there's there's the, uh, Kepler with this mountain of Tycho's discoveries. And uh, he um, uh, is sitting there, and he uses them to formulate, to prove Copernicus, and to uh, formulate the three great planet laws that we remember him for.
1: I'm genuinely sorry to note that this enjoyable chat was also never re-aired on Parallax since we first broadcasted back in 2004, show number 103. Again, we advise you to use the archives at radioparallax.com and hear it in full. Sam Keene is a fine science writer. We were lucky to have him on to talk about three of his very entertaining and informative books. His first appearance was to discuss the book The Disappearing Spoon and other tales of madness, love, and the history of the world from The Periodic Table of the Elements. And we got right to it. Mr. Keene, the periodic table sits at the back of chemistry classes and reveals so much about the world of chemistry and physics at one glance, if, if those are in the know. But for, for the people out there who ignored it in school, why is it such a remarkable summary of data?
0: Um, yeah, as you said, you know, everyone kind of remembers it from high school, <laughs> but uh, not everyone remembers it fondly all the time. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a remarkable collection of data because you can look at it at a glance and understand how the elements, how the the boxes, the individual elements on the boxes, will react with each other. And you can tell their properties just by looking at it, because elements in the same vertical column on the table have very similar properties. So it's just a clever way of organizing matter and keeping track of it that scientists can use, uh, as you said, to summarize a lot of information very quickly.
1: Well, one fascinating aspect about the tale is that it, it, it does give people general rules that indicate how chemistry will go. But a lot of times in science, we learn a lot from the exceptions to those rules, and, and I, you made some note of that in the book about some of the oddities. Uh, uh, you mentioned specifically bismuth, which I took recently uh, with some Pepto-Bismol when I had an upset stomach. It's a medicine, yet it's surrounded on the periodic table by deadly poisons.
0: Yeah, it is. It's probably one of the more misplaced, Placed elements on the table. If you look at the little corridor where bismuth sits, it's right next to lead, uh, polonium. It's in the same column actually (laughs) as arsenic is, and uh, a little beyond it are are radon, some other radioactive poisons. But as you said, bismuth itself is completely benign. Uh, It's in Pepto Bismol, and it's used in other cases to uh, kind of clear the body of poisons. So it's really unusual that this single element, uh, for various reasons, uh, would suddenly appear down in Poisoner's Corridor down there in the corner.
1: (laughs) Well, in researching the various elements, uh, as you did for the book, what what facts surprised you the most, and and what do you think uh, comes as the biggest surprise to your audience?
0: The one story that really surprised me was the story of aluminum. Just because it's an element that we're all very familiar with, that we all know from day-to-day use, but it really had an unusual backstory that uh, I didn't anticipate at first. Um, for a long time in the 1800s, aluminum was actually the most precious metal on Earth. It was worth far more than gold, it was worth far more than silver. And the reason why is that even though aluminum is very common in the Earth's crust, the most common metal actually, it's always very tightly bonded to something in the crust, usually oxygen. So it's very hard to separate and get pure samples of it. And when scientists started to get pure samples, they were considered sort of miraculous. It's a very light metal, also very strong and attractive, though. Uh, and it became sort of a status symbol to have aluminum. Uh, the French actually used to keep these uh, Fort Knox-like bars of <laughs> aluminum and display them next to their crown jewels. And the Emperor Napoleon Third. Uh, actually had a prized set of aluminum cutlery that he reserved for his most favored guests <laughs> at banquets, and the lesser nobility had to eat with gold-sized forks. <laughs> and even the U.S. got into the game a little. The Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., down in the National Mall, uh, there's a six-inch pyramid of aluminum on the very top of it. And the idea was, in the 1880s when it went up, Ah, uh, the U.S. was kind of bragging a little, and we were saying we are such a an up-and-coming industrial power that we can afford to put aluminum on our public monument. <laughs> and I really thought that was a great story because, first of all, it was so unexpected, but it also shows how the uh, the fortunes of the elements rise and fall over time, and what's a very popular element in one time you know, in our day, has become sort of passe, something that's in pop cans and Little League baseball bats. So it was kind of a fun twist for an element that we all thought we knew so well.
1: Sam Keene covered the topic of the periodic table the elements quite well, but we absolutely could not resist working in a song by Tom Lear, who is an American treasure. Lear is currently a professor of mathematics emeritus, I think, at UC Santa Cruz. He produced three dozen whimsical tunes back in the 1960s that made him a regular on network television. Perhaps his most remarkable tune, among many remarkable tunes, is titled simply, The Elements.
5: and nickel, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, amoricium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthrum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, and protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, eterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bromine lithium, beryllium, and barium is that interesting? <laughs> I knew you would. I hope you're all taking notes because there's gonna be a short quiz next period. <laughs> there's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercury, and magnesium and and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum, plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium, and tantalum, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. <laughs> There's sulfur, californium, fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and arco radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.
1: And how Tom Lehrer did that, I just don't know. Anyway, Sam Keane would later return. To parallax, to talk about another great book of his, The Violinist's Thumb and Other Lost Tales of Love, War, and Genius, as written by our genetic code. We talk to them about the great biologist Lynn Margulis, who proposed that complex organisms came about by the fusion of primitive cells.
0: The idea was that way back long ago, when only bacteria lived on the planet, um, there was maybe a very large bacteria one day that tried to swallow a smaller one, it tried to engulf and eat it. Or maybe a small bacteria invaded a larger one. But something happened, uh, and the little bug ended up inside the bigger bug. And for some reason, there was kind of a stalemate. They just uh, either one couldn't eat the other, or the one couldn't attack the larger one, and they ended up just kind of coexisting with each other. It was probably kind of an uneasy coexistence at first, but over time, they began to specialize a little bit. Uh, again, the smaller one began to produce power for the cell, the bigger one could offer uh, safety, it could bring in more nutrients and food and they ended up dividing the labor between them. It was sort of uh sort of like the uh kind of an Adam Smithish kind of thing where if you divide the labor, each one gets better at its specific job, and Margulis believed that over time, over a long period of time, this eventually led to what we call the mitochondria today. And it was a really revolutionary theory. She turned out to be right about it. But when she tried to propose this theory, uh she ran into a lot of opposition for it uh yeah, scientists really actually kind of hated this theory and really gave her a hard time for it and you know that's not uncommon that happens in science a lot of time and different people react to it uh in different ways uh some people kind of shrink and they never go back and fight it margulis was not like that margulis was a fighter and she really came out swinging after people. And eventually she proved herself correct. And now uh, it's considered a really fundamental step in evolution, um, from, in the evolution from simple bacteria to the more complicated bacteria and eventually to multi-celled creatures. It was really, really an important step. And Margulis was the one who figured all that out.
1: Well, Margulis has another idea I'd like to just briefly go out on a limb with you on, is that sure. she's believed that uh, genes may leap species to species, and that may have a lot more to do than, with evolution than we'd previously thought. Uh, most people still don't believe that's the case, but as as we go along, we are finding that genes do tend to go from one species to another. So what do you think the odds are she might be proven right in the long run?
0: It's a bit of a controversial question. It's kind of an old Um, dilemma in biology. And it actually goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before, uh, about the eclipse of Darwinism. Again, it was the idea some people, like Darwin, think evolution happened very slowly. Other people like to think about evolution happening in leaps. They like to think of jumps. And Margulis was one of the people who believed in jumps. And she believed that uh, species could sometimes exchange DNA. There was more of a free flow of DNA kind of uh, horizontal instead of just vertical, the way we think about it, from parent to child. And she's definitely been proven right in some situations. For instance, in humans even, uh, we got one of the more important genes that makes up the placenta, uh, the, th- the interface between a mother and her child, uh, one very important part of the placentia, the part that helps it fuse to the uterus wall, actually comes from a virus. Viruses are very good at fusing with cell walls. And we kind of stole this gene from viruses, mammals did, and we still use it today. And it's one of the hallmarks of mammals now is the fact that most mammals use the placentia. So in this case, Margulis was definitely proven right. The genes can flow uh, sort of sideways between species. It remains to be seen whether they can bring about the kind of large-scale changes that Margulis uh, thought they would. Um, She was talking about, you know, brand new species arriving in possibly a single generation or something like that. Uh She was really into the idea of Big jumps, and that's that's still a more controversial uh, idea, and it's a little bit on the fringe. But it's an exciting one, and it's something that could actually help explain uh, kind of the incredible diversity of life that we see today and in the fossil record.
1: Well, we certainly now know that evolution is a little bit more complicated than Charles Darwin ever suspected. In an era of GMOs, this matter of genes just jumping species to species has become very important. And we would have a very fascinating chat on that subject with UC Berkeley professor Ignacio Chapella. Chapella had learned and argued that genes from GMO corn were now polluting the gene pool of Mexican plants that humanity will need to depend upon for future fresh genetic materials.
6: It's a very simple um, discovery. It's a very simple thing, even though it evidently had um, major consequences. The discovery itself is simple. We found pieces of the DNA of the heritable material from industrial transgenic corn in the genome, within the cells of the local land races, the local varieties that farmers grow in Mexico, in the southern state of Oaxaca. The startling discovery was uh, really to find it there because um, Mexico had and continues to have to this day a ban on uh, the planting of transgenic corn anywhere. So the nearest legal field of transgenic materials, transgenic plants, should have been hundreds of miles away. So finding this DNA within the local land races was pretty startling.
1: Now, one thing I think we want to emphasize when I when I got my degree at biological sciences here at this university back in the late 19, 1970s, there was much emphasis on retaining genetic variability from the various seed crops around the world. And what that involved was going back to where the crops originated, because that's where you find the greatest variability. I don't think people realize when we talk about Mexico, that is the center from which corn came, thereby magnifying the effect of having a contamination of the original sources of corn.
6: Exactly right. That that really is, is the significance of it. Um, specifically, this area in Oaxaca is the place where we know the oldest uh, remnants of domesticated corn. So we believe that this is where corn was actually domesticated, in these very places, about 10,000 years ago, and it has been kept by people that long in these areas.
1: I remember it being talked about when I was a student that you'd go to Ethiopia where they felt you could get original varieties of wheat. And and yet what we're talking about right now, one of the great important side issues in this this matter of genetic uh, transmodified food, is that this will supplant all over the world the numerous varieties that farmers have retained for their own seed crop.
6: That's right. That, that really is, the, is the, the problem. As you say, each, each crop, each of the major crops, uh, originated obviously in a given place on planet Earth, you know, rice in Southeast Asia, potatoes in the Andes, corn in Mexico, and so on. Uh, and it is in these places where we uh, have the repository of diversity that we need for the future. Uh, every time that a new pest or a new disease or an environment changes, Uh, we need to go back to those places and find genes that can be reinserted into the industrial crop to maintain productivity. So losing that diversity is something that we should all be very concerned about. Um, It didn't stop in the 70s. You know, that's very much actual still today.
1: I think at this point we need to take a short break. Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.